Well, I don't know about you guys, but I can relate to all of those video clips. And we have this idea at times, or especially around Christmas, that our families are perfect. So these are my three kids. I think we're going to get them on the screen. They are beautiful, I promise. Here they are, all right? So they look really great. But here's what you don't see. You don't see what happened about three minutes before and three minutes after. And I've got that picture as well. And so here we've got headlock number one, all right? That was earlier in the morning. And then we got, you know, headlock number two. And that's the reality of so many of our families, is that what goes on Facebook and what shows up on the Christmas cards don't necessarily match what happens when the doors are closed and everyone doesn't get visibility into our home. And this was true for me growing up. I grew up in a family of five kids, and I really grew up with my twin brother, Kevin, and my brother, Dave, who's about four years older than me, because we were closest together in age. And Dave and Kevin, they got along great. They were best friends. When Dave got his driver's license, Kev always rode shotgun, and there was always somebody sitting in the back, and that guy was me. And the reason was, Dave and I could only be described as enemies, Our sole purpose in life was to make each other miserable. That's what we set out to do. I I think the best example of this was one day, Dave got really frustrated with me. I was sitting in a chair. He did what all good brothers do when they're frustrated. He walked up behind me and boom, hit me right in the back. I fell out of the chair, pretended like I was really, really hurt until I realized that Dave literally was hurt. Dave had hit me so hard he broke his hand. And my guess is that my family is not the only family that has some pieces of that. My guess is there's some some families here tonight and here this weekend at 95th that have the same experiences. And it might have happened five minutes ago when you're sitting next to somebody. It might have happened an hour ago when you were trying to get to church. Our families have struggles. Our families have conflicts. Our families have issues. My family, as I got older and had kids, I realized that my wife and and my three kids were not perfect. Recently, we were in Iowa visiting some friends and and family for Christmas, and we checked into a hotel, and my wife Renee and I were putting our stuff away, and my daughter Taylor's playing nicely, and so we kind of forget about the two-year-old boy. Any of you guys ever done that? And so finally, we realized it got really quiet. And we couldn't find Joshua. And so we start looking in all the obvious places, behind the doors, in the bathroom, and we realize he's gone. And so I start searching the hallways of the hotel. I end up all the way down on the other end by the lobby, and I hear this yelling and shrieking and fun, but I don't see a boy anywhere. And so I look up, and there's an open foyer to the second floor. And I hear more yelling, and I go, I think he's up there. And so I wander upstairs, and I see my son running up and down the hallways of the hotel, just screaming and shrieking for joy. And then I see, you know, the people in the hotel rooms on both sides just opening their door, looking at him, trying to figure out what he's doing. And then they're looking at me, thinking, he's the bad dad, right? And so I grab my son, I bring him back downstairs. The next morning, it's a Sunday, we're out in rural Iowa, and It's Sunday morning, and when you're in rural Iowa and you're a pastor, you go to church. So I grab my daughter, Taylor. She's four years old. We go to church together. We leave Renee back at the hotel with my 10-month-old because he needed to take a nap. And we left her at home with the two-year-old boy because at rural churches in Iowa, there's no kids' ministry. And two-year-old boys in rural churches is not a good situation. So he stayed back with my wife, and Renee was given the 10-month-old a bath, 
And all of a sudden she heard again the shrieking and the yelling. And we had one of those rooms where you've got uh, two rooms connected by one of those doors in between. You guys have seen those. And so she hears the yelling, but it's a little bit faint. And she goes up to that connector door and realizes that it's closed. And those connector doors, they're one-sided. There's no door handle on her side. And so she hears the yelling. She's trying to coach Joshua to open the door. He's two years old and a boy. I mean, he's clueless. And so you would think she would just go outside to the exterior door and open that, right? She's got the key. But because of the the occurrence of the day yesterday, we had started locking that little latch at the top of the door so that he couldn't get out. So now we've got Joshua in the jail cell of the hotel room. And Renee starts searching for the, the housekeepers, and they eventually get the person at the front desk, and that person gets a little frantic and overly excited. They finally call their manager. They locate some keys. They rescue my child. And so sometimes the craziness of our families has nothing to do with the fact that we don't get along. Sometimes it's just crazy. And sometimes it's just crazy because we're really busy as well. I don't know about your family, but my family tends to be busy. I work full-time here at the church. My wife works very uh, part-time as a nurse. My daughter's in preschool. I'm taking grad school classes. We've got an active social calendar. Our, our friends um, live near us. We're in a small group. We've got family. We are busy all the time. And I think there's lots of people that can relate to me on that this weekend. And so I've realized four things about family as I've been reflecting on it the last couple of weeks. The first thing that I've realized is that there is no such thing as a modern family. They are all different. Every single family is different. When I was growing up, We used to watch some TV shows from the 70s and the 80s. One of them was called The Brady Bunch. Some of you guys might have heard of this, this, I guess, TV show. You've got a family with a mom and three daughters. And then you've got uh, a husband and three sons. And they come together to create a blended family. And what's amazing about this family is they make it look really easy. They make a blended family look really, really simple. Every conflict, every issue, everything that comes up is amazingly resolved within the context of a 30-minute episode. And then we've got the Cosby Show. And this show came out a little bit later, but a similar type of thing. We've got two parents. They both work high-profile jobs. One is a lawyer. One is a doctor. And yet, amazingly, they're able to make their big family work really well. And again, In the context of a 30-minute TV show, the issues and the challenges are always resolved. And I remember watching those shows and thinking it's so easy. And then now here I am trying to raise a family, and I've realized it is not that easy. And so the first thing I've learned about family is there is no such thing as a definition for what a modern family is. They all look different. Some of them are single-parent homes. Some of them are single-child homes. Some are widows, some are widowers. Every family looks and feels different. And because of that, I've also realized that we didn't choose our families. And this is really important to know. We didn't choose our families. Some of you might say, well, Dan, you chose your wife, and and that's true, I did choose my wife. I didn't have an arranged marriage. But beyond that, I didn't choose the rest of my family members. I didn't choose my brother Dave. If I did, I would have swapped him out. Some of us, we didn't choose our kids. Sure, we made a decision to have kids, but we didn't know what they were going to be like or what they were going to do. We didn't pick boy or girl. Some of you are sitting there tonight and you're saying, I definitely didn't pick my mother-in-law. We didn't choose our families. Our families are who they are, and, and for good or for bad, we're stuck with them. The third thing that I've realized about families 
is that Satan wants to destroy them. Satan wants to do everything he can to wreak havoc on our families, to take them down, to break them up, to make them not function effectively. And because of all of that, I've come to the realization in the last couple of months, and this has been a huge thing for me, and so I'm going on a journey with all of you this weekend because I've realized this in my life, and it's that my family is the most important organization that I will ever be a part of. And here's why. Eventually, someday, somehow, your position, your role in every organization you're a part of will either cease to exist or someone else will fill it. Here's how that works. If you're on a sports team, eventually, if you're in high school, you're going to outgrow it and you can't be on the high school sports team anymore. Or if you're a professional athlete, eventually no one wants you anymore. Or if you work for a company or you lead a company, eventually someone else is going to take on that role. For my wife, Renee, eventually someone is going to be a nurse in her position. For me as a pastor here at the church, someday, I don't know when, someone else is going to take that position. But what I've realized is that for my unique role in my family, no one will ever take that position. Only I can ever be the husband to my wife the way that God designed it. Only I can ever be the father to my children. Only I can ever be the unique son to my parents and the brother to my sisters and brothers. You can be the son. You can be the daughter. You can be the husband, the wife, the grandparent. No one else can ever take that role. And so because of those things this weekend, I ask you this question. If your family's the most important organization you'll ever be a part of, and you can't choose your family, what's your plan to make it work? Think of it this way. We plan for so many things in our lives. We plan our vacations. Some of us are really good at that. My mother-in-law is great at planning vacations. We plan our work days. We plan for retirement. We plan our workouts. We plan our workouts so well, we attach activity monitors, monitors to our wrists, Fitbits, all these things to help us plan better. And what I've realized is very few of us plan well for our families. And if you would have asked me three months ago, Dan, what's your plan for your family? I would have given you a great pastor answer for what my plan for my family was. But it wouldn't have been something that I had thought out with my wife and I had started to lead my kids in. Because I've realized that I need this plan for my life. And I think one of the reasons we fail to plan for our family is because sometimes the risk of not planning isn't realized for years down the road. In so many things in our lives, we plan because if they don't happen very quickly, there's a negative consequence to that. If I stop showing up on time for work, eventually I lose my job. If I stop paying my mortgage, someone's going to come asking for my house. But when it comes to our family, we might not realize the impact of not planning well for years and years down the road when all of a sudden our family doesn't want to be together. When all of a sudden we don't want to be a part of our family anymore. And so I've come to the conclusion that it is so critical that we have a plan for our family. And you know, with all the conflict and the issues that we've seen in family for a long time, 
you would think that the Bible would have a book in it completely devoted to families, but it doesn't. In fact, the Bible says very little directly about family. It gives us a lot of principles that we can try to apply to our families. And it also tells us a lot of stories about imperfect families, similar to mine, and my guess is similar to yours, that God uses in amazing ways. And we've seen this since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, first, first people, right? They're in the garden. We've got Eve. We've got Adam. And who shows up right away coming after families? We've got Satan coming for families. And he goes to Eve and he says, eat the apple. You'll be enlightened. You'll be more like God. And so Eve takes the apple and Adam is standing right next to her. And he actually commits the first sin because he doesn't stop her. And then Eve over here commits the second sin and she eats the apple. And then she passes it over. And Adam, third sin, he eats the apple. And then what do we see? God sends them out of the Garden of Eden because the world has changed forever. And I can imagine the conversation between Adam and Eve as they're leaving the garden. Can you think about it a little bit? So you've got Eve saying, Adam, why'd you let me eat the apple? And you've got Eve saying, why'd you eat there? You've got Adam saying, why did you eat the apple? It was so good in the garden. Now it's really, really hard. And then you fast forward a little bit, and Adam and Eve, they have the first twin boys ever born. And what happens there? Cain kills Abel. And so if you're here tonight and you're a parent and you think you've failed, you, you might have some, some room yet. You might have some grace because Cain kills Abel. And then we keep fast-forwarding in the stories. And what we start realizing is that God has a plan to restore us back to him. And his plan to restore us back to him is built on family. And he uses families throughout to do that. And one family that he chooses to use is a family that isn't even married yet, Mary and Joseph, the mother of Jesus, and mother and father of Jesus. And what we see there is Mary has an angel come to her and say, you're going to become pregnant, and I'm going to be the father. And you've got Joseph on the other end. Here's the news from Mary that she's pregnant, and God is the father of it. And can you just imagine what Joseph is thinking? He has never seen anything like this before. The thought that his fiance is pregnant and the father is God, that's absurd. And this is in a cultural time where for someone to be pregnant and not be married is unthinkable. I can imagine the conversations about Mary and Joseph everywhere they go. And so what we see throughout the Bible is God using imperfect families and imperfect people to restore us back to him. And so tonight I want to land a little bit on a man named Joshua. And if you think back to the Old Testament, you've got Joseph, who's the son of Jacob, Technicolor Dreamcoat, and he gets sent to Egypt, and eventually his whole family ends up in Egypt. And those are the people through which God wants to send his son someday. And so God needs a plan to get them out of slavery and send them somewhere else. And so God sends Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses goes in there, and some of you know the story. We've got the, the, the uh, plagues, and then we've got the crossing of the sea on dry land. And Moses delivers them out, and he's, he's sending them towards the promised land of Canaan. And they get close, and Moses, being a smart man and a great leader, realizes that he needs to spy out this land. And so he picks 12 leaders, 12 men who represented the 12 tribes, the 12 families of Jacob. So he picks his best warriors, his best leaders, and he sends them in as spies. 
And you know what? They come back. Twelve of them come back. Ten with their tails between their legs. Manly men. People who follow God come back and say, we can't do it. The cities are too fortified. The armies are too large. There is no way possible except for two men, Caleb and Joshua. And they say, we don't know how, but we think we can do this. Let's move forward. And God sees this faithless generation. And he says, they're not going to enter into the promised land. And so he allows them to wander around in the desert for 40 years until they've passed away. Except for during that time, Moses is getting on in age. And he needs a successor. And so the easy choice is for Joshua to take over as the leader. And Moses makes that decision. And Joshua takes over to lead the Israelites. And he leads them into Canaan. He leads them into battle. They conquer Jericho by walking around it. Can you imagine the amount of faith and obedience needed by Joshua? God says, go to a really fortified, strong city with huge armies and just walk around it. Just leave your weapons put away and just walk around it and I'll deliver it to you. And Joshua listens and we see that happen. And Joshua moves forward and he conquers the land and he divides up the land amongst the 12 tribes and he gets towards the end of his life and it's recorded for us in the book of Joshua in Joshua 24. He gets towards the end of his life and he shares with us his dying words in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read them for you here this weekend. It says this, So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? And then he continues, But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And this is the rallying cry of Joshua. And this is the end of his life. But this is how he lived his entire life. He led his family. He led his tribe. And he led all of Israel convicted that if they serve the Lord, they will be successful. And I think one of the things that we can learn from Joshua is that God blesses obedience. Because every time that Joshua is obedient to God, they're able to conquer new lands. They're able to do amazing things that they never thought possible. And the times when Joshua and the Israelites aren't obedient, they pay the price. You can read the story for yourself. And so what I've realized, just like Joshua was in enemy territory with the Israelites, I've realized that our families are in enemy territory. Satan is doing everything he can to conquer and destroy our families. We talked about it earlier. Since the beginning and all throughout time, he has come after our families. If Satan had a scoreboard to see how he was doing and trying to get us to stop worshiping the one true God and to worship him and the things of this world, the destruction of families, the destruction of marriages would be at the top of the list. It is, it is Satan's rallying cry with all the people that follow him to say, let's destroy marriages. Let's destroy families. And so this weekend, if we're convinced that our family is the most important organization we'll ever be a part of, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what's our plan to make it work? 
And for some of you here this weekend, that's all you needed to hear. You just needed someone to stand on the stage and say, you need a plan for your family. Whatever you do, have a plan for your family. And so you're going to run out the doors tonight and this weekend, and you're going to write up your plan, and you're going to email it to me, and you're going to tell everybody about your plan. But I think that's just a handful of us. The rest of us this weekend, we're asking, where do I even start? What does a plan for my family look like? I'm good at business plans. Do I just create a business plan for my family? And so this weekend, I want to give us three really simple pieces of a strategy and a method to see our family succeed. And since I'm not very smart, I just made them the three Ps of how to have a strategy for your family. And so if it works for me, I think some of you will be able to grab onto this. I would encourage you in our navigators this weekend, we've got the three Ps listed. You can just fill in a couple notes. And if you are convinced that your family needs a strategy to make it work, and I'm, I'm telling you it does, because I'm raising my family, and it wasn't until we got serious about this and my house that some things started to fall in order then I would encourage you to write some of these things down to follow with us this weekend. The first thing we need is we need a priority. And a priority really answers the question, what? Think of it this way. If you asked me to build a house for you, you would hope I ask you what kind of house you want. Because if I don't ask that question and you don't give me the answer, I might come back to you with a two-story house, all the bedrooms on the top floor, beautiful floor plan, wonderful home to which you might respond, my mother-in-law lives with us and she can't do stairs. We need a first floor bedroom. And so I, I worked out the whole, all the blueprints, but I didn't ask what first. And so we need a priority. We need the what for our family. And I say priority because I think it needs to be one. And here's why. My family over the course of the last six months had eight priorities. I could name some of them for you. We wanted to sleep train one of our sons We wanted to potty train the other one. Uh, I was taking some difficult classes at grad school. We just talked about it a little bit earlier. I'm going through a transition in my role here. We moved into our house two years ago and have had two children since, so we never really got everything organized there. We wanted to take a family vacation. There's a couple more, right? And we tried to do eight things. And you know what I realized? I only got about two and a half of them done. I only got about one and a half of them done well. And some people came and bailed me out on a few. And so I've come to realize that if we just simple it down and and we make it easy and do one thing at a time, it's a whole lot easier. I, I once heard someone say, how do you eat an elephant? And I heard someone ask the question, how do you eat an elephant? And thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard in my life until I heard the answer. Well, you eat an elephant just like you eat anything else, one bite at a time. And so for our families, it doesn't matter what the state of our family is extreme chaos, or we got it pretty well together, there's probably a few steps we can take in our family. And if we take one at a time, we can make some progress. So if you're here this weekend and you say, Dan, my family is too far gone, I'm here to say your family is not too far gone. God loves your family. God wants your family to slowly and steadily make progress in the goals that you have. And so we have to have the what. We have to have the priority. The second thing we need then is once we know what, we can come up with the plan. And the plan is really the how. So the priority is the what. The plan is the how. 
Think of it this way. Here's the priority for my family for the next four months. We've decided that we need to improve the organization of our home and our calendars. It doesn't have to be anything overly spiritual. Here's the pastor up front telling you that he needs to improve the organization of his home and his calendars. Because my family, we double book way too often. And it gets frantic. We're trying to find a babysitter. We're trying to reschedule things. We're trying to cancel things. And it gets really, really difficult. And so we need to improve that. And we also just need to organize some things at our home. Have you ever walked into work or walked into school or started to do your homework and your desk is just completely and totally covered and you don't even know where to start? Well, we feel that way a little bit at our home and so we need to get that cleaned up a little bit. So that's our what? Improve the organization of our home and our calendars. And so the plan is really the how. How are we going to go about doing that? I think you need four to six pieces to your, to your plan, to your how. And so for, for my family, we've got five things on ours. The first one is this. We're going to effectively manage our calendars. And we're going to do that by making sure that Renee and myself are never out more than one night a week by ourselves. We want to spend time together as a family. We want to invest in our kids. We want to invest in our marriage. And so if we're already out one night that week, we're going to say no to the next opportunity that comes. Second one that we have is we're going to stop double booking our calendar. Renee and I have a goal to not double book our calendars one time in the next four months. For us, that's a big deal. You guys might be better at that than me. Third thing, we're going to ensure that our family gets adequate rest. We run really, really hard. And I'm not the only type A person in this room. And so we need to just take some time for my family to stop. The fourth one is we're going to get our basement and our garage organized. Those just tend to be the catch-all for us. People are coming over, throw it all in there, don't have to think about it anymore. So we need to get that taken care of. And the fifth thing that we need is we need to prepare for a restful family vacation. And so we're going to make sure that that happens in the next four months. My guess is there's a lot of people in in, in this room with us this weekend with unused vacation time because we didn't do a good job planning to use it. I'm guilty of it. And so that's our plan. That's our how. And so some of you say, okay, great. We need a what. We need a how. But there's got to be something missing there. There's got to be like a foundation to it. And the answer is yes, there is. And I'm calling it the principles. And the principles are really this. They're our core values. They're the things that no matter what, our family will always be about them. The things that we will never change, never adjust, or if we do, it will be very infrequently to say that this is the way that the Vanderwall family operates. And so my family, we came up with four. We didn't really involve our kids in this. They're a little bit young. They would have said, well, our core values should be eating at McDonald's all the time, never taking naps, and making sure that no matter what, we always watch good movies. That would have been the core values of my little kids. So we didn't involve them with that. But Renee and I, we came up with four. They all happened to start with F. Again, I'm not that smart. This was just kind of dumb luck that they all started with F. And so the first one for us was this, faith. Our faith impacts everything we do. Our faith is integrated into every area of our life. School, work, our social calendars, the things we do in our neighborhood. And we're not perfect. That's not what I'm saying. But we're trying to get our faith integrated to everything we do. No walls, no compartments for different pieces. Second one is this, fun. Life is too short. Life is too hard. We need to have some fun. And so our family values fun. I take one day off a week, and we call it Family Fun Friday. 
and that's all we do. I don't work. We, we try to not do work around the house. It is fully focused on having fun, and we've named it that way. The third thing for us is finances. And this is really just us saying we want to live within our means. So if, if we have to go buy an, a car, let's buy the car that we can afford, not the car that's a stretch. Because we know if we buy the stretch car, it's going to create some strain. And financial strain in family creates devastation. And we've all seen this in different ways. And if we go buy a home, let's buy a home that's a little bit below what we can afford. Again, is to not add financial strain. And, and this is a little bit different than those of us who find ourselves in the situation of unemployment or underemployment. That is a very, very different situation. I'm talking more about, hey, we've got our income. Let's live within the income that we have. And the fourth one, and those of you who know me aren't going to believe this one, and this is the input and the influence of my wonderful wife. Our fourth one is fitness. Me left to my own, I would eat McDonald's way too much and would never eat vegetables. But whenever I go home, my wife always cooks good meals. She's always encouraging me to go to the gym. She's always encouraging me to be healthy, to get out, be active. And so we want to do that. And the reason we want to be fit is not so we look good. The reason we want to be fit is so that we can achieve the goals that God has for our family. And so if you're here with us this weekend, it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a non-believer, you've got goals for your family. And this is a great method, a great strategy by which we can make sure we achieve those goals. And so I dare you to try it. I dare you this weekend to say, you know what? I don't have a real good plan for my family. I've never really taken the time to put it together. My business plan at work is great. My retirement portfolio is killer. And I've got the itinerary for my next vacation that's in nine months. But if you ask me to write out a plan for my family, I'm not there yet. And so I dare you to try it. I dare you to try the three Ps. To ask yourself, what's our priority? What's our plan? And what are our principles? And then I want you to dream with me a little bit. Dream about your family. Dream about our church. Dream about your community. Sprinkled with men and women taking this seriously to make sure that they have a plan to see the most important organization they will ever be a part of be successful. So turn the radio off when you're driving home this weekend. Change the conversation at the next family meal. If you're a student or an elementary school student this weekend with us, ask your parents, what's our plan for our family? Work on it together. And let's see what God does as we adequately plan for our families. And then come back next weekend because we're going to talk about our family of choice in our friends. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, did you choose your friends or did your friends choose you?